This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. You're listening to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for firm faith in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. It's going to get worse before it gets better. We're facing opposition far more intense than anything Christians in the United States have experienced in the last century. That's the message from Luke Goodrich in his new book, Free to Believe, The Battle Over Religious Liberty in America, published by Multnomah. Goodrich, the leading religious freedom attorney at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, has fought and won in the Supreme Court, but he's concerned that we're not prepared for the changes that now confront us. He writes, we've long lived in a country where religious freedom was secure and we didn't need to give it much thought. Now we're realizing the country is changing and we might not enjoy the same degree of religious freedom forever. If we don't start thinking about it now, we'll be unprepared. Goodrich joins me on Gospel Bound to help us get ready. We'll discuss how we can suffer with joy, what we can learn from the Quakers, why some courts seem so incredulous about Christians acting as Christians, and more. Uh, Thank you, Luke, for joining me on Gospel Bound. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Luke, what's the bigger problem that you see right now facing Christians? On the one hand, apathy over the threats to religious liberty, or on the other hand, anger over those threats? I think different Christians fall into different camps when it comes to religious freedom. And as I lay out in my book, a lot of Christians, I think, approach religious freedom first and foremost as a political issue or a legal issue without realizing that first and foremost, it's a theological issue and a biblical issue. So I see, you know, when I talk to conservative Christians, they tend not to be apathetic. They tend to be more prone to fear. And they think of religious freedom primarily as a political tool for protecting Christianity and keeping the door open for the spread of the gospel. And, you know, that's not that's not untrue, but there's a lot more to religious liberty than just that. Uh, And then when I speak with Christians who have a more progressive political bent, they would tend to be more you know, deny the, the the threats that we face on the religious freedom front today. Uh, some of them would say, hey, you know, a little bit of persecution might actually be good for the church, might actually wake us up. And, and so uh, they tend to kind of downplay the importance of religious freedom. But I think both of those camps are really uh, have a have a kind of shallow view of religious freedom, treating it just as a political, legal slash culture war issue. And what we really need as Christians is to start thinking about it from a biblical and a theological framework first. I think that's one of the most helpful things, Luke, about your book. Uh, I wonder, why do you spend so much time in a book on protesting, you know, liberty or protesting for religious liberty, talking about how we need to be prepared to suffer? I would assume in many approaches to this topic, people are doing this precisely so that we don't have to suffer. Yeah, so I'm I'm not uh, in favor of of suffering necessarily, and when I go into court, I'm you know I'm trying to win these cases, and we've had a lot of success in court uh, at the Beckett Fund. But you know the main the main theological message of the book is 
you know, religious liberty is not just a tool for protecting Christians and making ourselves comfortable. Uh, neither is religious liberty just a culture war issue or, or a luxury that should be taken lightly. Rather, religious liberty is a basic issue of biblical justice rooted in the nature of God and the nature of man. And so it's worth fighting for, uh, not because we're scared of losing our rights or scared of suffering, it's worth fighting for because it's a matter of justice and it's the right thing to do. And that has huge implications for how we approach the issue of religious liberty in America today. Yeah, I mean, do you think, I mean, I opened the introduction talking about some of your views about how I mean, you, you you see the problems as being pretty severe. Do, do you think, and I guess you wouldn't have written the book if you thought we were really prepared for this, but what do you think are the main areas of where we're not really prepared, especially on the suffering side of things? Yeah, so I, I identify in the book, you know, first we want to have a, a theology of religious freedom, understand uh, where it comes from biblically. So that's the first part of the book. Uh, the second part of the book focuses on what are the main threats in the country today and identify five key areas where we're going to see most of the religious freedom conflicts in the years to come. Uh, for traditional Christians who have a traditional uh, sexual ethic, the number one area is the rapid advance of gay rights and the pressure that that's going to place on Christians and people of other faiths who believe marriage is between one man and one woman. So. Gay rights is a major area of conflict. Other areas include abortion rights and the, the press to force Christians and people of other faiths to participate in abortion. And we've seen that like in our Hobby Lobby and Little Sisters of the Poor cases at the Supreme Court. A third area is what I think of as uh, non-discrimination laws and how those get applied to religious groups and their, their desire to have leaders and members who agree with their core religious beliefs. Uh, fourth area, uh, is how we're going to be treating minority, non-Christian religious faiths. And are they going to receive the same type of protection uh, that other faiths receive? And then the fifth and final area I address is what I call the public square. And these are fights over religious symbols on government property, uh, religious funding or government funding for religious groups, uh, or religious observances in public schools. So those, those five areas, we're going to see a lot of religious freedom conflicts. And I think Christians need to understand the nature of those conflicts and then how we should respond. One group in particular comes up again and again in your book, and I don't think it's a group that's well certainly not very numerous today, and it's not a group that many people think of. Um, that would be the Quakers. Why do you cite them so frequently as an example that traditional Christians can learn from today? Yeah, so a lot of us have forgotten the history of our country and, and the role that the Quakers played. You know, we, we think of our country as a safe haven for Christians who are fleeing persecution in Europe and they came over here and immediately we had religious freedom. Uh, but that's not the case. You know, the Quakers came over, uh, particularly in uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony where the Puritans were, uh, the Quakers were unwelcome and the Quakers were persecuted. They were punished. They had Some of them had their tongues bore through with hot irons. They had their ears cut off. Several Quakers were actually hanged uh, for preaching in Massachusetts Bay without a license. So Quakers faced immense persecution, uh, both for their preaching, but also for, for two issues. One was their refusal to serve in the colonial militias and take up arms. The other was their refusal to swear oaths. And the colonial governments uh, massively persecuted the Quakers because of that. 
Uh, but as I address in the book, the Quakers, you know, they just joyfully adhered to their religious convictions. You know, they believed uh, what they believed about scripture. And no matter how much the government punished them, they weren't going to take up arms. They weren't going to swear oaths. And it was hard. You know, they suffered serious injustice. Uh, but over time, the colonies realized, look, we're not getting anywhere by punishing these Quakers. Uh, it's just causing more turmoil and social upheaval. And over time, by steadfastly suffering and doing it joyfully, uh, the Quakers really won some important religious freedom protections in the early history of our country. And I think that's a lesson that we all need to, to take to heart today, uh, that religious freedom comes not just from good laws. Sometimes religious freedom comes from good people who are willing to suffer for their religious beliefs. And I think that's really going to be how we maintain religious freedom in the years to come is our, our faithfulness to our convictions, our willingness to suffer joyfully. And that's really how religious freedom is going to be preserved over time. Yeah, this is going to be a long game. There's going to be a tremendous requirement for perseverance. Um, and of course, Christians have all those spiritual resources to draw on, not to mention the very biblical and theological expectations um, that perseverance and suffering are an essential part of, of exercising our faith. Now, let's turn a little bit to the nature of the threats that are uh, just how things have changed, I guess, in more recent history uh, within our lifetimes. Now, why do you think I, this is, I guess, one of the things that's most confusing to me? Why do you think the left soured on the, the approach that you describe as allow but don't require? on abortion and other issues related to relig religious liberty. It just seems like, and I'm not sure exactly how to explain this, that gay rights really broke up what had seemed like a somewhat fairly peaceful compromise in the era of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of the early and mid-1990s. Yeah, so for those who aren't familiar with the history, you know, early 1990, the Supreme Court issued a terrible decision on religious freedom saying that the state of Oregon could criminalize the central sacrament of the Native American faith of possessing and using peyote. And that 1990 decision provoked a bipartisan backlash with everybody saying like, hey, this is a deep violation of religious freedom. And it resulted in a very important civil rights act called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, passed unanimously in the House, 97 to 3 in the Senate, and signed into law by President Bill Clinton with much fanfare from everybody from the ACLU to the National Association of Evangelicals. Uh, fast forward uh, 20 to 25 years, and the same type of Religious Freedom Restoration Act uh, proposed at the state level in Indiana and Arizona just provoked national outrage, particularly from the left. And you know, the question is why, and uh, that you asked, and in the book, I identify a number of key shifts in our culture that have led to the deterioration in the climate around protection for religious liberty. Um, and, and the main issue is that core Christian beliefs, longstanding Christian beliefs that may not have been universally held, uh, they at least weren't controversial, uh, are now viewed as a threat to progress in culture. And number one is the view uh, in absolute truth, Just Christian belief that, that there is absolute truth is now often viewed as a form of discrimination and intolerance. And that trickles down, you know, the Christian view of marriage between one man and one woman is now viewed as a discriminatory form of bigotry and a threat to gay rights. And then the Christian view that life begins at conception 
is now viewed as a threat to abortion and to women's access to quote unquote healthcare. And so those three issues, truth, marriage, and life, uh, where Christian beliefs were either widely held or not controversial, now they're viewed as a threat. And then you combine with that, that uh, religion is increasingly uh, less important in the daily lives of many Americans, like fewer people identify with religion or believe in God or pray. And so you know, fewer people have a felt need for religious freedom. And then lastly, uh, the, the explosion of religious diversity, uh, many more non-Christian faiths in the country right now, uh, just simply as a practical matter, makes it difficult for the legal system to accommodate the wide variety of religious beliefs. So, you know, you combine all those factors together and it, it means the climate today on religious freedom is dramatically different than it was 25 years ago and really different than it has been ever in American history. Did the legal community widely understand immediately in 1990 that Justice Scalia had made a terrible mistake? Yeah, so the, the 1990 decision on peyote, Employment Division versus Smith, was written by Justice Scalia, and he was widely criticized for that decision. A lot of people uh, caught them by surprise, uh, but it's not you know totally out of keeping with Justice Scalia. You know, he tends to be a law and order type and, and want clear rules. Uh, but it is a, a, a deep irony that a lot of people don't uh, still appreciate today that really one of the biggest blows struck against religious liberty by the Supreme Court was written by Justice Scalia. Could you explain um, just the, the jurisprudence switch that happened there? I thought that was just a really helpful part of the book. I mean, first, you're, you're dealing with the fact that uh, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, of course, is is a national law on the books, but it doesn't apply in many state cases for states that have not adopted it themselves, correct? That's right. Okay. And so that had an adverse effect in a particular case that you uh, had taken up and, had, um, and were attempting to appeal to the Supreme Court, where I guess, ironically, it also was not taken up because of Justice Scalia's death. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So there, there are kind of two different legal regimes around uh, the free exercise of religion today. So one is the Constitution, the free exercise clause that Justice Scalia and the court in 1990 really cut back on the protection provided by the free exercise of the Constitution. And under that legal regime, if we're suing just under the federal Constitution, you kind of have to prove that the government is targeting religious people because of their religion. You know, so with when Oregon banned peyote, it wasn't out to get Native Americans. It was just a blanket law, like nobody can use peyote. It just so happened that that hit the central sacrament of the Native American faith. And the Supreme Court said, too bad. You know, Oregon's not targeting Native Americans, so it doesn't violate the Constitution. And that opens up all kinds of you know, cans of mischief where the government can prohibit all kinds of religious practices as long as the law kind of applies really broadly. So the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, that 1993 law signed by Bill Clinton, that really changes the legal regime. And it says, you know, it doesn't matter if the government's targeting religion or not. If the government is burdening religion at all in a significant way, um, the government has to have a really powerful justification for doing that and show that there's no other way for the government to accomplish its goals uh, without burdening religious people. So that provides that civil rights law, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, provides a lot more protection today uh, than does the Constitution. 
but it only applies to the federal government. So when it comes to states, you know, states, some states have enacted their own uh, heightened protections for religious freedom. Uh, others have haven't. So you know, when we won the Little Sisters of the Poor case in the U.S. and in the U.S. Supreme Court and the Hobby Lobby case, we were relying on the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act. That's what gained the victory there, uh, not necessarily the Constitution. Masterpiece Cake Shop, another case that you write about in the book, that though was based on the state. But the the difference was it was very easy to show specific animus toward religion. They had singled out traditional Christian views. That's right. That was the baker who couldn't bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. And the Supreme Court ruled in his favor under the Constitution because there was evidence in that case that the government officials themselves you know, had called his religious beliefs a form of bigotry and had really shown hostility toward him because of his religious beliefs. But in, in most cases, you know, government officials are smart enough to hide their hostility if they have it, and that can make it really difficult to win cases under the free exercise clause. Well, isn't that kind of the lesson, though, that presumably governments will take away from Masterpiece Cake Shop, which is you can do whatever you want as long as you just hide it? That's right. That's, you know, that's what governments often try to do. I mean, we had a case uh, involving a pharmacy and some Christian pharmacists who didn't want to stock and dispense drugs that could cause an abortion. And the government in that case, you know, they let Planned Parenthood draft a new regulation that ostensibly required all pharmacies to carry these drugs and, and sell them and hand them out, uh, but was really just a, you know, a, a thinly disguised effort to get at Christians who had religious objections about abortion causing drugs. And we, we ultimately lost that case uh, because they had, you know, hid their hostility enough to satisfy the Ninth Circuit. And so that's, that's a major issue in, in these cases that we're still litigating today is, you know, to what extent does the government hide their hostility and to what extent do you have to show that the government is out to get you or just that the government has really dramatically interfered with your religious practices? Uh, I'm going to ask a question that is a legal question, but of course, it's got a lot of philosophical and even theological implications to it. The simple question is, what is dignitary harm? But then more broadly, just help me to understand, how can it be considered discriminatory just to hold beliefs that others find offensive, such as the view that God created us male and female? Yeah, so that, that's a huge question, and, and I devote two whole chapters of the book looking at the potential conflict between gay rights and religious liberty. And if I can just back up a step, I think a lot of us, we hear, you know, many Christians are aware of like the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, you know, the baker who couldn't bake a cake for a same-sex wedding, and uh, other religious vendors, you know, photographers, florists, who, who can't in good conscience offer their services in support of a same-sex wedding. But those cases involving wedding vendors, they're really just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to conflicts between gay rights and religious liberty. And that's that's one category of cases is like private lawsuits where a same sex couple uh, is you know, doesn't get the service they want and they sue a religious individual or a religious business owner. Uh, but I would say the even bigger threat when it comes to, to gay rights and religious liberty is not private lawsuits, but a threat from what I call government penalties. This is where the government, it doesn't wait for an aggrieved same-sex couple to sue. Instead, the government kind of looks around at its own programs, its own interactions, 
and says, if you hold a traditional belief about marriage, or if you don't serve same-sex couples the way you serve everyone else, you are a discriminator. And we, the government, will brand you a discriminator, and we will penalize you uh, in a various ways. It could be the denial of funding. It could be the denial of contracts or grants. It could be taking away your license, like a license for a counselor or a license to operate your business. Uh, or, you know, further down the line, it could even be the denial of tax-exempt status. So you know, we see these two major areas, private lawsuits and then government penalties. And I, I tease out in the book, like all the different ways that religious organizations may get uh, caught up in these conflicts. Uh, but you asked, you asked about dignitary harm. Dignitary harm, right? Yes. And, and one of the main, the main argument from the LGBT side of this potential conflict is an analogy to race discrimination. You know, they say, and just like we don't allow businesses to turn away uh, an interracial couple, we shouldn't allow Christians to turn away same-sex couples. And so they play up this analogy to race. And I think a lot of Christians, when they hear that analogy, they kind of get caught flat-footed and they're not sure how to respond. Uh, so I address that at length in my book, Free to Believe, and point out that the analogy to race fails on many levels. Uh, number one, it fails as a historical matter because our country has a uniquely tragic history of race discrimination. We had over 300 years of slavery based on race, a civil war fought based on race, government imposed segregation based on race, and, and therefore, we had uh, systematic and pervasive barriers to full participation in the economic, social, and political life of the community uh, for African-Americans. And because of that, the government has been given unique tools and powerful tools to eradicate race discrimination, uh, tools that it hasn't been given for any other form of, of discrimination, not for sex dis discrimination, age discrimination, disability, religion, or, or anything else. And so you see, as a legal matter then, you see this reflected that the law treats race very differently from any other kind of discrimination. And just one example is when it comes to employment discrimination. You know, all 50 states ban employment discrimination based on race. You can't fire somebody because of their race. And there are no uh, religious exemptions from those laws. But when it comes to sexual orientation or gender identity discrimination, uh, there are only 23 states that ban that form of discrimination in employment. And yet all 23 states include religious exemptions from those laws, recognizing there's just simply a recognition that religious groups have a legitimate interest in expecting their employees to follow their religious beliefs about sex and about other matters. Uh, and then lastly, the Supreme Court has also recognized that race is very different. In the Loving versus Virginia decision back in 1967, when the Supreme Court struck down bans on interracial marriage, uh, it called those bans uh, invidious relics of white supremacy and really condemned the views underlying those bans on interracial marriage. By contrast, in 2015, in the Obergefell decision, when the Supreme Court uh, upheld or affirmed same-sex marriage, the court went out of its way to do the opposite. And it said that uh, traditional marriage laws are, quote, based on decent and honorable religious and philosophical premises that have long been held and continue to be held in good faith 
by reasonable and sincere people here and throughout the world, uh, mm. unquote. So the Supreme Court is going out of its way mm. to say like, hey, even though we're legalizing same-sex marriage, the beliefs underlying traditional marriage are worthy of respect and entitled to respect. So the Supreme Court has recognized that race is different as well. So it sounds like this is the part of the conversation where we need to talk about the Equality Act and in uh, fairness for all. Uh, so you're in Utah, and so you could you know speak to some of that, especially on a, on a state level there as you've seen that play out. But let me put it within this broader context. It seems that Christians are eager to find some kind of compromise that will secure um, some basic ideas of being able to function. Uh, you, of course, know and have, and have helped with uh, Sarah Zalstra's work at the Gospel Coalition and writing you know, extensively on this issue, uh, both from the CCCU's perspective as well as sort of the broader issue facing Christian colleges there. And, and I've shared this in different forums before, but I, I did not understand what she was writing about at first. I thought I was writing a, I thought I was editing a fairly narrow article with her about the challenges that, that Christian colleges would face because of the pressures within academia. But, uh, but lawyers um, kept pushing back saying, you don't understand. we're, We're just the Equality Act away from almost all of these Christian views being penalized in some way, not just at Christian colleges, but everywhere. Um, now, maybe there's a difference between a church, say, and a school or something like that. But still, I mean, the, the, the threat was far more significant than I had imagined. So let's say the well, and I, I ended up asking, like, what are what are we supposed to do about this? Because, I mean, I think one of the responses I got was, well, I guess just keep hoping Republicans are in the White House or the Senate. And I mean, if, if that's if that's the answer, that's the answer. But help me to understand more just legally or politically what that looks like in light of something like the Equality Act, given what you had just said about the way the law treats race and sexual orientation and gender identity differently, but then how the Equality Act comes in, something that was passed unanimously, I mean, or passed by all Democratic members of the House currently in majority. Yeah, so the Equality Act is very important. It's a law, uh, a a bill proposed in Congress. It's passed the Democrat-controlled House, and it's been endorsed by every Democratic presidential candidate. So it's a big goal right now of the Democratic Party. And what the Equality Act would do is add protections for sexual orientation and gender identity across the whole scope of federal anti-discrimination laws. So like earlier, I said only 23 states ban employment discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. The Equality Act would address employment discrimination and and expand that coverage to all 50 states, but not just for employment discrimination, also for what are called public accommodations. These are just about any business that is forward facing to the public. And many nonprofit organizations as well would be treated as public accommodations and forbidden from, quote unquote, discriminating in their services based on sexual orientation, gender identity. Also applies to housing, applies to uh, higher education. It would eventually apply to like government grants and contracts. So this would be a major shift in federal law, basically making it the United States government policy that anybody who discriminates, quote unquote, discriminates based on sexual orientation or gender identity is doing something bad, doing something against public policy and can be punished 
in a wide variety of ways. And the Equality Act has no religious exemption. And that's what really makes it so astounding. I mean, 10 years ago, there were uh, you know, precursors to, to the Equality Act that would prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity, but they always had religious exemptions. And those religious exemptions were actually endorsed by the ACLU and by the LGBT rights groups. So the big shift that's taken place is not just that they're pushing for these anti-discrimination laws, they're pushing for them and trying to eliminate any kind of religious exemption. And so the upshot is if laws like this pass, religious organizations across the country that hold to a traditional view of marriage will face new lawsuits, new liability, and new government penalties across a wide range of issues. So that's why the Equality Act is so troubling. Uh, and as far as what can be done, you know, one proposal out there is called Fairness for All, and we can go into that if you want. That, that would sort of be a horse trading. You know, you trade, you give some protections for LGBT groups. You would also secure religious exemptions. At least that's the hope. It seems it seems to be dead in the water, though, politically. Yeah. I mean, there doesn't seem to be a constituency for it. So that's why I was asking, it, it would seem that we would want to try to find a compromise, but l- let's just say you talked about the situation 10 years ago with religious exemptions. Is the only change from 10 years ago just the political climate? In other words, the LGBTQ community just now realizes they can get away with more than they thought they could get away with back then? Or did something else change? Yeah, no, I, I think that's the big change is they've gotten an increase in political power so they can accomplish more, so they want more. Uh, and then I think there's more hostility toward traditional religious beliefs about marriage and and actually a desire to to punish those beliefs. And I, I talk about in the book, I mean, they, they draw that analogy to race discrimination. And, you know, I've talked with legal academics, you know, they really believe that if the government turns up the heat on traditional religious beliefs about marriage right. and starts to punish right. them, that religious right. people will abandon those views. Like Just like segregation. Right. Like with segregation, when the government turned up yep. the heat on race discrimination, the, the Christians who held those views abandoned those views. And that's what the LGBT rights group think and a lot of progressive uh, legal scholars think. Uh, but, you know, we know that, you know, what the church has taught for 2000 years about marriage is, is not going anywhere anytime soon. And so there is going to be this conflict. Uh, that's why I bring up the Quakers and how they eventually secured religious freedom through suffering. Um, but we're also litigating. I mean, the Beckett Fund, we have a very comprehensive litigation strategy. You know, if the Equality Act goes into force, there are a number of ways it can be challenged in court uh, under the Constitution. And so litigation is important. Uh, but I also, you know, the whole third part of my book is devoted to practical steps we as Christians can take to be prepared for these types of conflicts in the future. Uh, one major category is, of steps is is our mindset, how we approach the conflict, how we approach the potential suffering from a biblical point of view. And the other major uh, practical step is, is just how do we arrange our institutions, you know, our nonprofit institutions or our businesses to minimize our risks and maximize our potential that we're allowed to continue living out our faith in the public square uh, as we have been in in the prior years. 
Just a couple more questions here with uh, Luke Goodrich, author of Free to Believe, The Battle Over Religious Liberty in America. Uh, one is going to be a, a practical question that follows directly up, Luke, with what you just said right there. And then another one of them will just be uh, uh, just asking you to elaborate on a really jaw-dropping line at the end of your, at the end of your book. So anyway, let's start with just a follow-up right there. It seems like and this is in the news right now. Um, it just seems that this incredulity every time a Christian school expects its Christian teachers who have signed commitments to teach according to a certain code of, you know, of ethics or theology or conduct, that they would actually be held accountable to that. We've seen another case recently where the students and the parents who've signed covenants to a school are somehow just flabbergasted that those matter uh, to the point of of bringing or at least threatening legal action against the school for holding those. So one of the things you write, that this is the most important religious freedom question of the next decade. Can religious groups require their workers to follow religious standards of conduct? And you indicate that conduct is more likely to be a problem than theology. I assume there because, of course, also religious standards of belief in those cases, but the government is loath to jump in on a lot of those theological matters. But the conduct part, of course, relates directly to the things we've been talking about here, marriage, sexuality, all that kind of stuff. So what is something that a church or a, or a Christian nonprofit can do right now to be able to prepare? One, one other thing quick there, we've said another case of a seminary. I presume this is something that you would recommend, but it appears that the angle that the that um, is being brought against this seminary is that they sort of that they were winking and nodding that it was it wasn't really serious that they were against gay marriage and that in fact they weren't really intent on enforcing any other you know standards of of conduct there as well. So I presume one of the things he would suggest was if you're going to have this on the books you better enforce it and you better enforce it all better to enforce it rigorously than selectively. That's, that's going to get you in a lot of trouble legally. Yeah. So you, you put your finger on a major issue and I'm working on three cases right now on behalf of the archdiocese of Indianapolis, where they've had multiple educators in their Catholic schools who've entered same sex marriages, who've been let go and then have sued the archdiocese saying you're discriminating. Uh, even though they had signed employment contracts agreeing to uphold Catholic teaching and, and agreeing with the Catholic belief in marriage. Uh, we're also representing Fuller Theological Seminary right now. I'm not sure if that's the case you meant, but yeah, we, we're defending Fuller because they've been sued by one of their students who violated the community covenant and entered a same-sex marriage. So this is a, a huge issue of, of affecting groups across the religious spectrum. And one of the practical steps I gave in the book is what you've touched on, because a lot of these threats, you know, all these religious freedom conflicts, they're coming from within. This is not somebody yeah, right. totally foreign to right. the organization bringing a religious freedom conflict to their doorstep. They're coming from within. And so some of them come from employees. So with that, it's essential for religious organizations to clearly define their religious mission and pursue that in a comprehensive way. So it needs to be reflected in their organizational documents. They also need to be intentionally communicating and cultivating support for their religious mission from top to bottom, 
within the organization. And that may mean classes or training for employees or retreats, which really making sure everybody knows the religious mission. Then they need to align their employment practices with their religious mission, you know, know the, the trade-offs. So at the front end, you know, have some screening mechanisms to ensure people are really committed to their religious mission. And then even at the back end, like after somebody's brought in, you got to keep clearly communicating the religious significance of the job, you know, evaluating them based on their uh, performance with your religious mission in mind. Uh, and then enforcement, you know, you I think he's mentioned rigorous. Uh, I think of it more as like consistent and gracious. Yeah, consistent. And, yeah. and like a lot of groups, you know, I, I, they don't really think about their employees all that much until they get out of line and then they want to whack them. But yeah. really, you know, thinking about your employment as, you know, if, to the extent you're able as a form of discipleship and seeking to walk alongside your employees in a gracious and compassionate way and, and bring them back to the truth when they stray, you know, that is not only makes you look better in litigation, but more importantly, it's like what we're called to as, as followers of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of what you can do, you know, in the, in the employment context and like who, you, who you're bringing uh, into your organization. Then you also need to think about threats that can come from the outside, you know, whether you're partnering with the government or what lines of business you're engaged in, where those threats can come from and how you can minimize those threats. And, and I address that in the book as well. Yeah, by uh, by rigorous, I'm I'm thinking especially within say a church context there, where if you never exercise church discipline for anybody getting divorced in your church for unbiblical reasons, but all of a sudden you start to you know discipline somebody because they've entered into a same-sex dating relationship. I mean, you may not be getting in trouble with the government, but you're not exactly helping your case either as Christians or legally in a difficult environment there. So, but you're right. Consistent and gracious is a better way of putting that. All right. Just one more question here for Luke. And, and you can see, I mean, we're getting a great, you know, overview of a really important book that I, I strongly commend here. So here's the jaw dropping statement. I wonder if you know what I'm going to say here. I wouldn't be surprised, you write, if Christianity were deemed a dangerous ideology in this country long before Islam is. There's a context for your statement. It includes uh, dealing with fairly uh, kind of complicated matters related to, well, you kind of do a tricky way of talking about it. You, you pretend like you're talking about a church, but it turns out you're actually talking about a mosque in that case, but showing that prejudice against religious, you know, building and things like that, you know, it's something that we're all in the same boat with. You can't single out Muslims for this. Um, but, uh, but just help us to understand where you're coming from with that comment. I think I probably agree with you. And yet, it, in some ways, it doesn't make a lot of sense, given the history with Christianity in this country, given the history with Islam in this country. And yet, that's a really important belief for Christians to know, just as we go forward here, understanding what our sort of political predicament is in some ways, which affects the legal, as we've been discussing. Yeah, I, I think it's important for us as Christians to realize, you know, although Christianity has been the dominant religion in this country uh, from its founding, I think traditional Christian beliefs about marriage, about human life, and about absolute truth, you know, as I said, are increasingly viewed as a threat to modern culture. And so even though Islam holds many of those same views. Yeah, and you know, I've I've talked with a lot of Christians who are who are very wary of granting religious freedom to Muslims because they are 
in the cases I've spoken with, they're, they're afraid of what Muslims might bring into the country or might do. And so, you know, they're, they're willing to give the government powerful tools to, you know, stop a mosque from opening uh, because they think Islam is a, is a dangerous ideology. Um, and, and so what I say in the book, you know, I, I'm in the book and at Beckett, we defend religious freedom for people of all faiths. And I think if you understand religious freedom as a basic issue of biblical justice, rooted in the nature of God and the nature of man, it, it is something that extends to people even who hold erroneous religious beliefs. Um, but if you're going to give the government power to say, hey, this, this religion is dangerous, therefore the government can suppress it, you know, you might suppress Muslims in Tennessee, but in Berkeley, California, you know, in, in, ups, you know, in, in New York, New York, uh, you're, you're going to have the government deeming Christianity to be a threat. You know? And you see this- As we saw in the peyote case. That had nothing to do with Christianity, and yet it was applied to Christians, just like anybody else. Yeah, absolutely. In, in my work all the time, it's you know precedents where the government has denied religious freedom for non-Christians come back to bite Christians. So even if we only care about Christians and only care about our self-interest, it's, it's simply good common sense to defend religious freedom for people of all faiths. Uh, but I think the deep reason to do that, to do that is, is the biblical uh, case for religious freedom as a matter of justice. Uh, but even, you know, we've talked a lot about language in the book, you know, talking about the threats to religious freedom. Uh, but I do want to underscore that my book is not a book of fear. Uh, it is a book of hope. And I talk about in the Gospel of John where Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. And I'm a realist. And on the front lines of these cases every day, we, I can tell you, we are going to have some trouble when it comes to religious freedom. But in the very next breath, Jesus said, take heart, I have overcome the world. And, you know, where, where does that kind of a hope come from? Uh, as Christians, we could look at our uh, strong constitutional guarantees of religious freedom, our good civil rights laws, our good court system, our good judges. Um, and it would be easy to look at that and say, you know, and, and at Beckett, we have a, over the last 20 years, we have a 90% win rate across all of our cases. We're undefeated in the U.S. Supreme Court. You, know, you can look at that and say like, hey, we have it good in this country, especially compared with Christians in other countries. And that's true. We do have it good. Uh, but I think ultimately our hope needs to be rooted not in uh, favorable election results or a good Supreme Court. Our hope needs to be rooted in the person of Jesus Christ, uh, who, by the way, you know, the cross was an example of a violation of religious freedom. I mean, Jesus suffered because of his claimed uh, relationship with God. And God brought tremendous good out of that. So we worship a savior who's victorious, who's resur resurrected, and our hope uh, comes from him. And no matter what we go through, if we have to suffer like the Quakers, uh, we have hope. Uh, if we win a Supreme Court case, uh, we have hope. And it's a hope that doesn't depend on the outcome uh, of the next election. So that's what I'm trying to underscore in my book. And you do that so well. I, I the way I describe John sixteen thirty three, and the way I describe your book, Luke. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think I encounter too many books that I resonate with so strongly. But I describe it as a kind of sober hope. Um, like it's a, it's a, it's a. You can say you're a realist. Like it's a realist look at the challenges that we face, but it is infused with hope. Not only because there are good legal strategies that can be pursued, or it can be helpful politically simply to be in tune with these things and be informed voters, but beyond that, you do consistently come back to the biblical and theological rationale for religious liberty, as well as for 
just being faithful Christians within a difficult environment. So I happen to be working on a book right now um, that is along some of these same lines. But that was one reason why I picked up your book and was so inspired by it, as I was just so encouraged to see some fellow travelers on that journey. So forgive me for emphasizing so much the uh, the negatives on here, um, but it definitely is a book that's full of um, full of that hope. So my guest on Gospel Bound has been Luke Goodrich author of the new book, Free to Believe, The Battle Over Religious Liberty in America, published by Multnomah. Thank you, Luke. Thank you so much, Colin. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound with Colin Hansen. Join us next time as we continue the search for firm faith in an anxious age. Visit tgc.org slash gospelbound to find transcripts and past episodes, subscribe to my newsletter, and suggest a guest or topic that will help you find hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ.